welcome to episode 47 of History Does You. Today we'll be exploring Germany and Austria-Hungary in the First World War. And we had an interview with Dr. Alexander Watson, which is a great interview. This is, I think, our third or fourth episode we've done on the First World War. And I think it's a conflict that I'm always drawn back to, not because of U.S. involvement, but rather the lack of. I think that because the U.S. was only so involved in the later stages of the war that the amount of scholarship done both from the American perspective and the amount of scholarship in the mainstream of U.S. history is somewhat limited. And although the aftermath of the war brought a lot of changes to the United States, particularly when it came to the Roaring Twenties, and then obviously kind of set the stage for the Great Depression and World War II. But I think it's just going back and examining it from the loser's perspective, specifically Germany and Austria-Hungary, is a unique perspective. There's that famous saying that history is written by the victors. And if you look at the scholarship, particularly, I would say, after both the world wars, there is this idea of Germany being the culprit of all both the world wars and for the reasons they happened. But I think you need to take a closer look, particularly when it comes to World War One. I. I think people very often associate World War One Germany with World War II Germany, and they're quite different, I think, in many ways. And although there are, I think, overlap, you can make connections between them, which Dr. Watson will reference, that sort of what later happened in the World War II, it's still, I think, important to examine and when examining Germany and Austria-Hungary, because ultimately World War I would end the Austria-Hungarian Empire, and it would cripple Germany for a few decades, and I think sow the seeds that would eventually come with the Second World War. But also, it's kind of phenomenal that being surrounded by three great powers, Germany, France, Russia, having not very strong allies in Austria-Hungary and Ottoman Empire, and yet Germany was still able to fight for four years and almost won the war. And they defeated Russia, which no power had been able to do before. And although some might argue it was due to internal issues within the Russian Empire that brought it on, in reality, I think it was German victories on the Eastern Front that eventually led to the Russian Revolution in 1917. So there's a lot to explore in this episode. And again, I think examining the loser's perspective when it comes to the First World War um, not only gives perspective on the reality of the First World War, but also on the effects of losing a major conflict and how it sort of has ripple effects that can go on for years, if not decades. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. We cover a lot of different topics, but it's, I think, a unique perspective to look at the losers of the First World War. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Alexander Watson. He is a professor of history at the University of London, specializing in conflict and identity in East Central Europe. His latest book is The Fortress, The Great Siege of Sheshmel. He is also the author of the widely acclaimed book Ring of Steel, Germany and Austria-Hungary at War, 1914-1918. The book won the 2014 Wilson History Prize, the 2014 Gilda Lerman Prize in Military History, the Society for Military History's 2015 Distinguished Book Award, as well as the 2015 British Army Military book of the year. So welcome on. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me on. And just to start, what is your favorite subject of history to research and talk about? Why is it your favorite? And how did you become interested in Germany and Austria-Hungary during the First World War? 
It's got to be the First World War for me. I mean, I've written three books on the First World War. And yeah, you talk to professional historians, you talk to a lot of students as well, and you kind of get obsessed with one particular period, which seems epoch making, which seems fascinating and all its sort of diverse aspects. Having done it for 20 years, I'm now planning on moving on and doing something different from the First World War. But I think I'll come back at some point. I will come back because it's a war that I think changes everything. I think it's no coincidence that in traditional historiography, we talk about the long 19th century, which stops in 1914, and suddenly you have the modern world there. It's a conflict which which rips Europe apart, and Europe, of course, dominates the globe at this point, so it changes the entire geopolitical system. It shifts for the world from a place of empires to, over the course of the following century, a place of, of nation-states. And more than that as well, it has a huge impact on individual lives, a deep, deep impact on millions of individuals as well. And that's really the place where I started my interest in the First World War. I've been in the First World War as a particular place in kind of British national mythology, British identity, because it was the worst war that Britain went through. And so certainly when I was at school, there was a lot about it. You knew people who uh, either had been through it or whose fathers had been through it. The mud, the trenches, the horror of the static warfare for four years on the Western Front. That came through the war poetry as well that we did in English class. It made a massive impression on me. And yeah, that was my starting point. And what are some of the biggest challenges that you've encountered in your field? So... I specialise now in Central Europe. My first book was called Enduring the Great War, and it was about British and German soldiers on the Western Front. And it asked the question, why didn't they collapse? There'd been a lot of work on shell shock before, before I started writing, but I was interested more in actually why the majority of soldiers didn't suffer nervous breakdowns. And so I started with both looking at the British and the German side. And as I said, I came to the First World War as an area of study because of learning about it in school, which was very much from a British perspective. But once I started doing the German side, I realised that actually the further east you go, the more interesting and also the more awful things get. And shifting like that from focusing particularly on the Western Front, on the British and Germans, then moving through to Germany, Austria-Hungary, Poland sort of broadly Central Eastern Europe. I mean, the obvious challenge is the languages. I mean, there's plenty of good national military history, but I think that comparative history actually really adds something to the analysis. I think to fully understand a battle, to fully understand a war, more broadly to fully understand history, you really do ideally need to speak more than one language. You need to have access not only to the literature, but also to the perspectives of different societies that have been involved in these events. I mean, the ideal historian would, would be a polyglot, speaking seven, 10, 50 languages. Sadly, that's not me. I wish it were. But having that extra set and taking the time to learn the languages was, I think, one of the most valuable things that I did in my studies. And it opened a world of new perspectives for me. And it was massively challenging too. When I started my doctorate, I didn't speak German. I spoke very little German. I had very basic German. I could buy food and perhaps have a conversation about the weather. And it wasn't going to get much further than that. I learned my German in the first instance by reading First World War soldiers' published letters, which gave me a really, really weird vocabulary. It got to a point at one point where I, it was really difficult to have any conversation about modern German politics. But if you wanted a conversation about a reconnaissance trip over trenches, not a problem. So linguistically, it's a challenge. The best thing is to go and live in a place. And that can be difficult as well. You get your assumptions challenged. You have to make your way in a foreign language. But in terms of being... How can I put like a mind opening experience, both within the history that you'll write and beyond that is just phenomenal. 
But it's, of course, it's always it's a challenge going into another history that you're not familiar with, going into it in another language. And of course, German is particularly complicated, at least in terms of European languages in the early 20th century, because the handwriting doesn't use the modern alphabet that we're used to. There's a particular style of German handwriting called Zutelin, which you have to learn. You can't expect, even if you're fluent in German, you can't expect to open one of these handwritten letters and simply and simply read it from scratch. Germans not trained in this modern Germans, they can't generally read it. The first soldier's letter I read took me a month to read. It was only four pages. And it was really just a case of deciphering it out. I had a chart with all the different letters, but it took forever. But you overcome these challenges, you build your confidence, and it's exciting and you find stuff. So that would be the first obvious, the first major challenge in doing what I do. I specialize the language that I speak are German and Polish, and each of them comes with its own challenges. I guess the second challenge is meeting people, getting to know people, getting to make contacts, and that can be really important. I find, at least among my own undergrads, a lot of them come into university thinking that history is about this They've got this romantic image of historians going into these archives and blowing dust off documents and discovering things that haven't been read for 100 or 200 years. And it can be like that. It can be really exciting. We don't quite do the sort of Indiana Jones rolling under stones, but that is an aspect to it. But a lot of history is about conversation. It's about debate. It's about argument. It's about moving things forward. It's about talking to people, finding out what they know, getting hints, getting tips, sharing knowledge. And yeah, making those contacts in Poland, in Germany, it was a really rewarding thing, but of course, challenging too. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of discuss the lead up to the war, we'll be talking about particularly Germany and Austria-Hungary during the First World War. Generally, what was kind of the state of Europe in the decades leading up to the war? And how were Germany and Austria-Hungary navigating this kind of increasing hostile nature of what most people call great power politics? So one of the enduring fascinations of the First World War for me is the ways that to some degree our own geopolitical situation mirrors that of 1914. Because 1914, or the decade before 1914, is an era of geopolitical shift. It's an era in which Britain is Britain has dominated the 19th century. The 19th century has been, in geopolitical terms, Europe's century. Europe has dominated the globe. And no, no European country has dominated it more than Britain with the massive empire. Britain at that time is the world's superpower. The British Empire is the world's superpower. It's, it's the one really, truly naval power of the late 19th century. And from 1819, 1900, I guess really the, the key date is 1897, Germany challenges that dominance. And of course, it doesn't simply challenge it in military terms or crucially in naval terms, but it challenges it in the first instance in economic terms. We can see that the 19th century, again, Britain is the world's economic power, and that's changing by 1900. Of course, the US has industrialized massively quickly with its enormous resources. Russia is industrializing as well. And Germany has industrialized extremely quickly in the late 19th century and is increasingly competing for global market share. And the reason why I say that there's there's parallels with our own age is, of course, that what we see now is with the riot, with the economic rise of China since the 1990s. And I think, I mean, projections are varied, but I think the, the current projection is that the Chinese economy is due to overtake the US in 2028. It's really, it's really not so far away. We also see as well in our own age, um, that not quite a naval race developing, but maybe the beginnings of that for sure with the uh, exercises in the South China Sea, China's building of aircraft carriers, 
because we can predict that the challenges and changes to what has been a US half century are coming. And one of the questions about managing that is, is it going to be managed peacefully or is it going to result in war? And of course, in 1914, it resulted in a devastating cataclysmic conflict. That's quite a long-winded answer to your question, but we're looking at the end of the 19th century, two phenomena. One is an increasingly tense international system, a ruthless imperialist system, which is turning in on Europe. European states have been competing beyond Europe's borders in the late 19th century for territory, for resources. And that competition and the lack of rules that have surrounded it is turning inwards on Europe itself, which proves fatal. There is decreasing international trust. There is there is a naval race from especially 1905 to 1912. There is an even more menacing a land arms race in the last couple of years before the First World War. And yet, at the same time, and this is the other thing about 1914 that, that fascinates me, this is a world in which is more interconnected than it ever has been before, in which technology has advanced, science has advanced more than before. Humans uh, actually feel themselves to be in control of their destiny. They can cure diseases. There's modern scientific advance. There's the internal combustion engine coming. There's the railways. Distances are shrinking. Everything is interconnected. And yet people as well, it's worth saying, at least in Europe, freer and have more political rights than they have ever had in all of history. It's not a coincidence that the buzzword of the time is progress. There is a sense of optimism in Europe, a sense of superiority that that can be positive in some ways. But of course, there's a very malevolent underlying racial superiority, which is massively damaging across the globe. But there is an optimism in Europe that things can only get better for Europeans at the same time as these international dark clouds are gathering, at the same time as this international system is changing, is destabilizing, as um, Britain's dominance is ending and other countries are coming up and challenging that. And that's what's fascinating about it. This optimism in Europe on one hand and the approaching cataclysm on the other. And people see it. People see it in the way that we can talk about conflict started by sat Chinese satellite state North Korea and, you know, talk about US Chinese super or whatever else now. But no one really believes it can happen. It doesn't really seem possible. It's beyond the boundaries of imagination. And yeah, that's what I find fascinating. That weird mix of optimism with these incredibly damaging and threatening imperialist international system, which ultimately spells disaster for the world and and for Europe. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of lay out other broader stuff that was going on, can you also just briefly describe how Germany's and Austria-Hungary's government functioned? Were there democratic institutions governing or were they more autocratic in some ways? So they were a mix, which was entirely normal in on continental Europe at the time. In some ways, Germany and Austria-Hungary were more democratic than, for example, Britain, which fashions itself as this long-standing democracy. But actually, you know, democracy developed over many centuries in the UK. And one thing that Britain doesn't have, that both the Austrian side of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, because there were two sides, Austria-Hungary, and Germany has, is universal suffrage. Britain doesn't have universal suffrage in 1914. It's not, it's, I should say, universal male suffrage. Votes for women has only come later. Women are disadvantaged, disenfranchised across Europe, across the world at this time, pretty much. But Britain doesn't have universal male suffrage, whereas Germany and Austria do. Big difference between the system in Britain and France and the US on one hand and Germany and Austria-Hungary on the other is that 
people don't have, the parliament doesn't have the right to appoint the government, doesn't have the right to appoint the prime minister or the cabinet. That right remains in the hands of emperors. And that's common to Germany, to Austria-Hungary, it's common to Russia as well. If we think about a spectrum, a political spectrum, at the time, Germany, Austria-Hungary is somewhere in the middle. Russia is far to the autocratic end. France, Britain, even despite the lack of universal suffrage, because votes do equal, do end in a government being appointed, more to the democratic end. But there's not anything particularly exceptional about Germany and Austria-Hungary. I mean, this is one of the things about historiography. In the 80s, there was this idea that Germany was on a special path, the Zonderweg, it was called, which led directly from the foundation of Germany through war in 1871, or even back to 1848, when the liberal revolutions in Germany had failed, through the Kaiser to Hitler and genocide. And that idea has fallen. It was popular in the 80s for a while, but it was immediately challenged. And it's fallen very much out of fashion because Germany and Austria-Hungary, if you take this comparative view, going back to what I was saying before, they don't look that different from any other European state, really. They're pretty much in, in the normal realm. The way that Germany works is it's got a parliament voted by universal male suffrage called the Reichstag. It's also got a Bundestag, which represents the different states because Germany, like the US, is a federal system at this point. Weirdly, there are four kings in Germany. No one much remembers this because the most important, of course, was also the Emperor of Germany, the King of Prussia uh, in 1914, Kaiser Wilhelm II. But the states had quite a lot of power in peace. So this is quite a decentralised state. And the same is true of Austria-Hungary as well. That was a decentralised, that was a decentralised state too. With divided into two halves, Austria in one half, Hungary in the other, each had their own parliaments within Austria. There were other smaller parliaments, often called diets. And these were places which gave regions or the states within them or provinces within them a lot of, uh, quite a lot of autonomy, quite a lot of say. Mm -hmm. And just to kind of, with the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand, which was kind of the spark to the war, based on kind of your perspective, how much of a role did Germany really play in the start of the war? And do you think they are solely to blame for the war, which some scholars might have argued in the past? Whether Germany was to blame for the war, specifically. Yes. There's some responsibility. Yeah. I mean, without any doubt, it does bear some responsibility. But the idea most famously put forward by Fritz Fischer, the German historian who wrote at the end of the 60s that Germany was primarily responsible for the war, I think is wrong. I mean, if, if we look at the historiography and how it's developed, before Fritz Fischer, there was this sort of broad sense that kind of no one was really to blame. It, it was a product of arms races, of railway timetables, of kind of the system and the way things were. And Fischer said, no, actually, we really need to look at what Germany is planning and what Germany is preparing. He argued Germany was on a grass for world pattern that it engineered this war. And that really set off a whole stream of research on other countries as well as on Germany. And when other countries started being looking at, Germany for sure didn't necessarily seem that much, didn't come off in that much of a better light, but the other countries don't seem so benevolent or kind-hearted or cuddly or fluffy either. I mean, it's clear that there's more going on beyond Germany initiating and starting this war. Do you think it gives Germany too much power? Germany was one power among, one great power among many in Europe. 2012, Christopher Clark's Sleepwalkers came out. Very powerful and important book, a compelling book, because Chris not only looked at the capitals in the different powers of Europe, but he also looked um, at the relationships between the elites in those capitals. And crucially, he looked at the spaces between places too, the ways in which the elites in these different capitals communicated with each other and the miscommunications that came out of that. And of course, he placed Serbia at the heart of what uh, 
uh, at the heart of what he was uh, discussing, at the heart of his thesis. And I guess, again, going back to a previous question that you said about the First World War, the fascination of it, our interpretations continually change about this in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s. We really thought about the great power in terms of great power conflict because of the Cold War. That was the context in which historians were writing. However much we spend that time in 1914, we're still products of our own society. We can't step out. And now, of course, since 2001, terrorism is on the agenda everywhere. International terrorism, domestic terrorism. Let's just say that's a it's topical moment. And that changes the questions we ask of history. And it's changed the questions we ask of the First World War. And suddenly that, that event that this conflict starts with, the assassination of the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, this suddenly seems much, much more important. And of course, Chris's book placed that at the heart of the story. My own view is that Austria-Hungary, I'm, I'm less kind to Austria-Hungary than Chris is than Chris Clark is I think Austria-Hungary bears number one responsibility for this war. I think unlike any other any other power engineered, it wanted a war. Other powers are willing to accept a war and even willing to risk a war. But Austria-Hungary, unlike anyone else, actually went out to make a war, but to make a war with Serbia, not with the rest of Europe. And then that's what happened. And then I'd say my second most to blame would be Russia, because Russia does more than any other power to militarise the conflict. Russia mobilises and starts preparing its army earlier than anybody in this conflict. And I think that, therefore, that Russia bears a huge blame for the conflict. And then in third place, I put Serbia and Germany jointly. Serbia for its, the government for its, its reckless unwillingness to stamp down on the very dangerous goings on with its, in its own military secret service, which of course assisted the assassins, and Germany for recklessly supporting Austria-Hungary. And the blank check, this offer of support that the Kaiser and his Chancellor Edmund Hollivik give to, give to Austria-Hungary at the start of July, it's breathtakingly reckless, not because Germany plans the war, it doesn't, but simply because Germany says, yeah, we'll do what you want unconditionally. And then they let Austria-Hungary fumble their way towards war. In, in terms of statecraft, it's just mind-blowingly, I can't get really beyond reckless. Reckless is the word I go, go for. Mm-hmm. Kind of the military, how did Germany really envision a war in Europe? And did they really truly believe they could actually win a conflict? So militaries tend to be optimistic. I think that that militaries are programmed to be optimistic and have huge belief in themselves, in part because they have to cope with such extraordinary violence and uncertainty and chaos when they're on the battlefield. So one of the things that I've really found strongly from looking at a variety of different armies, the British army, the German army, the Austro-Hungarian army, is they nearly always believe they can win, even against the odds. They always find ways of believing, justifying this belief. And Germany was no exception to that. And of course, the German military really needed to justify this belief. Well, because the German military's prestige, its place in society, rested so heavily on its victories of 1864 against Denmark, 1866 against Austria, and 1870-71 against France, which, of course, the three wars which had led to German unification. So to go and say, actually, you shouldn't enter a war because we don't think we can win it, the German military can't easily do that without a massive, massive loss of face and with it a massive, massive loss of prestige. And so what you find, and Isabel Hull has written very eloquently on this, is a culture developing in the German military which focuses on minute detail to hone the efficiency of mobilisation of the railways, of getting troops to where they need to go and, and honing tactics, how troops fight, how officers think, how they can coordinate, how they can beat the enemy in order to give this comforting situation, we are better. Yes, 
Russia had more, France, Russia and France had more troops than we do combined. The hours are better, our command is better, we can win. And of course, the story of the First World War and the planning of the First World War is the so-called Schlieffen Plan, this idea that formulated by the chief of the Prussian general staff, uh, Alfred von Schlieffen, 1905, end of 1905, which is this idea for a quick victory over France by encircling, using a strong right wing, the French army. And the hope is that France can be beaten in six weeks with that. Now, Schlieffen is writing, is drawing up that plan at a time where war with Russia doesn't look likely. But that need for a quick victory becomes even more important as the first decade of the 20th century goes on. Russia recovers from the revolution of 1905 and it rearms and international tensions become greater and greater and greater. And so this idea that Germany should be able to beat the French in six weeks and then turn its, the army around to face the Russians is really honed. That, that emphasis on speed, that emphasis on decisive victory, on massive violence against an army to achieve a, a very speedy victory becomes increasingly important in 1940. And there are officers who think they can do it. I mean, from the point of view of 2021, it looks remarkably, it looks like fantasy. You know, France has one of the largest, best equipped armies in the world. To be able to beat it in six weeks on the other hand, in the Second World War, in 39, once the Germans, uh, 1940, once the Germans attack, they do actually defeat the French army, a mechanised French army, even quick. You know, they defeat it really quickly. So you can always go for the counterfactuals as well and, and think about that. In terms of Moltke, who is the chief of staff, so the commander, he commands the campaign in 1914 in the West. Does he believe it? I think he wants to believe it, but I don't think he wholly does. There's all sorts of evidence to suggest that he doesn't completely believe it. One piece of evidence is the way he changes the plan and the reasons for changing the plan. He reduces the strength on, on the right wing that Schlieffen has put in. And there are a number of reasons for that. But one is, and he talks about this, in a, um, he talks about this, he says he wants to leave a windpipe so that Schlieffen imagines not only invading neutral Belgium, but also neutral Holland in order to curve around and get into France. Moltke says, no, we shouldn't invade Holland. And he cuts that part off. A key reason for that is because he wants to use Holland, he says, as a windpipe to funnel supplies into Germany in case there's a long war. Now, why plan for that if you've got total faith in your operational plan? There's no need if you've got total faith. And that suggests that he's hedging, that actually there are doubts there. A second doubt is an extraordinary letter that he writes just on the eve of war, just before it breaks out, to the Chancellor. Belatedly, and Moltke bears a lot of responsibility for the war because he's been pushing for a preventative war. He's been pushing for war. He's asked German leaders to organise a war in the months before. He gets cold feet at this point when it's about to happen. And belatedly, he writes to the Chancellor and he says, this is going to be a war which will tear European civilization apart. Which it did, you know. He was right on that. It's pretty he didn't come to that conclusion a, a couple of years earlier. It would have saved everybody a lot of bloodshed. And this is going to be a war that lasts and that, again, suggests that total confidence, it's not there. Mm -hmm. And just to get into the war itself, I wanted to kind of explore some of these issues, maybe not be on the battlefield itself, but maybe just to start, how was the war kind of received initially by the social and political classes, both within Germany and Austria-Hungary? Was there a lot of enthusiasm for it? Was there, there doubts? What was kind of the pulse, I guess, of when the war initially started? So... At the outset, the story was that there was a lot of enthusiasm. That, that was believed for a long time. As the war approached, there were crowds of war-infused people singing patriotic songs, marching through city centres, demanding support for Austria-Hungary, or in the case of Austria-Hungary, war itself. 
And it was only in the 1990s that historians began to take a much closer look at that. Jeffrey Verhey, a US historian, works in Germany. German historians as well, Wolfgang Kruse, for example. And they found that actually this idea of war enthusiasm had been massively amplified by the bourgeois press. And that these groups who did march through were a particular demographic. They were young, middle-class males, particularly students. My students, when I talk, tell them this, always find this amazing, the idea that students would march for war. But of course, you know, students were much more upper middle and upper class at this time. The proportion of people going to university was tiny. You had to be very privileged to go there. And the education these people had had was nationalist, imperialist, but it was reserved to them. Young male upper class men made up these crowds. And what was found when historians did more research was there were many more people taking part in the last three days of peace before Europe tore itself apart. I mean, Germany, in anti-war meetings, some three quarters of a million people across Germany took part in in anti-war meetings. But the reason why these didn't get so much reported on was that the government insisted they'd be held behind closed doors. The overwhelming mood on the police reports, and this is one of the useful things from the perspective of being a historian, unlike if you look at Britain, there's lots and lots of police reports about mood, about population mood, and you can draw a lot from that. But you can draw a lot as well from the newspapers if you read them carefully. The overwhelming mood in Germany and in much of Austria-Hungary was depressed and fearful. People weren't naive about what was coming. No one, I think, foresaw that the war would last as long as it did. But everybody was very, very clear that this was going to be a bloody and frightening conflict with very, very extraordinarily high stakes. And people don't want it. If people across Central Europe had had a vote at the end of July 1914, the overwhelming majority would have voted against the war. So only once mobilisation starts, so that is the calling up, the process calling up of reservists, conscripts of the armies. So once mobilisation starts, that shifts. In Germany, it shifts when news of Russian mobilisation comes out. I think some historians have underestimated actually the reality of that, the lived experience of that. Russian mobilisation meant that Germany was under threat of Russian invasion. That's a fact. That's how it was. People weren't deluding themselves when they actually realised, they recognised that this was a genuine threat to their country, their homes, their ways of life. And that causes a massive shift in Germany. That sense of fear, that sense of being under attack, a bit of imminent peril. The other thing that causes a shift in Germany as well is that the government and the Kaiser uh, manage the political mood very skillfully. The Kaiser, on the eve of war, stands out on his balcony, looks over a crowd of 40,000 people and says, I see no more Germans, uh, sorry, I see no more parties, only Germans. And that's taken as this, well, it's taken in different ways, depending on whether you're a conservative or a liberal or socialist. The conservative spectrum, it's taken as a huge mark of unity, that we're all Germans now, parties don't matter. We've buried our, our arguments. And Germany is a free society, it's a civil society, society that's run by the rule of law. There's lots of protests. This is a society which has a lively debate about the status of workers, the status of workers' rights, of parliamentarianism, of democracy. And conservatives say, OK, great, we're unified. Now we're all Germans, that's shut down. Liberals and socialists take a very different view, which is that, yes, we're all Germans now, we're defending. But in return for that, you will respect us all equally in the aftermath and we will all have equal rights as well. That's how we understand what you've just said. And there's this most amazing piece of political theatre in the first days of August when Parliament, the Reichstag, which, as I've said, is, is voted by male universal suffragists, has got a lot of legitimacy. Um, convenes in order to vote war credits through, that is, money to fund this war. And all of the deputies vote for the war credits. 
that's a huge moment of unity that the social democrats who have really been at loggerheads with the government over the government's autocratic tendencies, the employer's unwillingness in Germany, unlike in Britain, to recognise unions, the lack of true democratic accountability for the government, all of these things for the social democrats to vote with the government for war credits, it's astonishing, it's breathtaking for the entire parliament to vote. It really does seal this idea of unity. And it has a huge impact on the populace because, of course, one of the things that I, one of the points that I make in my book, Ring of Steel, I, I write a lot about popular uh, chapter on what the response was in that book. Um, you don't mobilise people. M- mobilisation, mass mobilisation for war involving armies of millions of soldiers doesn't happen by government saying, you do that. It's not a top-down process, simply. Actually, to mobilise people for a war this big, with this high stakes... Governments have to get the support of opinion formers and opinion leaders in different segments of the population. Priests who are influential within religious communities. The Catholic identity is very important for much of southern Germany. Social democratic politicians and, and trade unionists for the workers. Journalists of all political shades. Academics. Academics were much more influential then than we are today. All of these people need to be brought on board. And the Kaiser's speech on the eve of war, and then this war credits vote really does that very, very skillfully. So what we see is most people didn't want war before mobilisation, but once war seems inevitable, once the Russians mobilise, there is this mood shift, and there is, I do credit this national unity, there is truth in that. It's a very dangerous truth, though, because the Nazis later mobilise it for their own propaganda. They look back to 1914 for their idea of the Volksgemeinschaft, the people's community. Everyone was unified in 1914. They say, we can do it again today. And they put, again, this evil racial spin on it. One of the points that I made in my latest book, Fortress, is this evil racial spin that features in European history. It doesn't come out of nowhere. We actually already see it in 1914 in other contexts. The history of, and this is this topical for today, the history of imperialism, the history of racial discrimination, the history of bloodshed, according to race, racial discrimination on bloodshed, it's not a product of the of the totalitarians in East Central Europe purely. We can actually link the world beyond Europe and the extra-European empires that were run by Britain, France, Germany, with what goes on in East Central Europe in the middle years of the war as well. There are continuities, there are, or if not continuities, there are certainly close links there, which link the pre-1914 world with the horrors of the totalitarian dictatorships and broadly the horrors of imperialism as well. And again, all of these meet in the First World War, and that's why it's such an exciting topic. Mm-hmm. Just shifting back to the military side of things, um, do you think there was a particular battle or a year during the war that ensured that Germany and Austria-Hungary couldn't win the war? Or do you think it was just kind of slowly over this attritional kind of warfare that took over that eventually led to their demise? It's a really interesting question, and there's a really interesting debate on that. And there are plenty of historians who say, you know, 1914, really, actually, already, Germany doesn't stand a chance. they Germany is facing, especially once Britain enters, Germany is facing a huge coalition. This is one of the exciting things about writing Ring of Steel, because the story of the First World War from the central perspectives, from the Germany, from Germany's austria hungary perspective, is the ultimate underdog story. That's what's exciting about it. These people are fighting, these countries, these two states, along with their weaker allies, Bulgaria and the Ottoman Empire, are fighting a coalition which has two-thirds of the world's gross domestic product, so if you like, economic power in its control, two-thirds of the world's territory under its control, and about 70% of the world's population under its control. 
And more than that, because Germany and Austria-Hungary are blockaded during the war, they can't draw on any of the neutrals resources, really, either. Maybe Switzerland a little bit, Denmark, Holland a little bit, but not much. They're cut off from the world. The British ensure that with their naval blockade, which starts pretty early, November 1914. And in my view, that blockade, more than any other, which is a war crime by the standards of the time, by international law at the time, did more than any other single measure to radicalise this war, to turn it from a limited war to something, well, to a 20th century total war, ultimately. But yeah, but this huge coalition arrayed against the central powers can draw on the resources of the world. The US ends up manufacturing huge quantities of munitions for the British, even before it enters the war in 1917. So yeah, so it's kind of understandable that a lot of people write Germany off in 1914 already. The Germans themselves, before the First World War, said, look, if we're going to do this, we have to win quickly, because if this turns into a long war, we have no chance. That was what the Schlieffen plan was about. We've talked about this. That was the plan for, we have to defeat French quickly in six weeks, and then the Russians, because otherwise we won't stand a chance. The Russians have too much manpower. And when you factor Britain, the superpower, which fights differently from every other, it doesn't have a big land army, but it's got a massive maritime presence, and it can block an entire sea off to international maritime traffic. I mean, what hope do these central European states have? And the amazing thing is that they go on for so long. I just find it extraordinary. Over four years against all of that. And more than that, I would say, sorry, that was a bit of a precursor to your your question, but 1917 is the date. It's the number one date. And I say that because the Germans win in the East. If we go back to that conversation we had about the outbreak of war and and the popular mood, it's Russia at the outset of the war that is seen as the big threat. Russian mobilisation is seen as the big threat. And they win. They actually defeat Russia with all of its manpower, with its industrialization. Russia is out in 1917. But just before the first Russian Revolution, in March 1917, of course, the Germans make the catastrophic error of unrestricted submarine warfare. And that brings in the United States. And once the United States is brought in, the Germans aren't going to win. That really spells doom, I would say, for the Germans. I call it in the book, the worst decision of the war. And it is. The Germans hadn't done that. I think they would have won. To all intents and purposes, they would have won. Most likely, there would have been some sort of stalemate on the Western Front, which would have enabled them to cement their gains in the Eastern Front. And we would have seen a Central and Eastern Europe dominated by Germany through the middle of the 20th century. But that fatal error and predictable error as well, it was entirely predictable that the US enters the war. The big problem was that German leadership underestimated the impact of that fatally. Um, That's what spells Germany's doom. Once this new massive power with the ability to mobilise a huge army, to create a huge army from scratch and crucially mobilise its industry, once that enters, there's no way that an exhausted Germany that's been fighting Britain, France, Russia, Romania, Italy... Serbia, there's no possible way that Germany is going to come out of that afterwards. Mm -hmm. So yes, in 1917, I think is the key. Mm -hmm. And I guess to sort of wrap up the aspect of the war, do you think that ultimately the end of the war was because of internal issues within Germany, Austria-Hungary, or defeats on the battlefield, or maybe even just a combination of both? The war ends in a defeat on the battlefield. I think it's really important to establish that clearly because, of course, the idea, the notion that the war ended in revolution and it was betrayal on the home front, this was an idea very much favoured by the far right in Germany. It gave rise to a myth, a legend known as the stab in the bat legend, the idea that the German army had been victorious on the Western Front and if only the weak home front had held out, then the Germans could have won. 
That was the myth. The Nazis embrace it. They use it to discredit interwar German democracy because that interwar German democracy came out of the revolution. And it was a very malign legend which played a a major part in undermining Germany's first true democracy, tragically, because, of course, the people who take over are the Nazis in 1930s. And they are the beneficiaries of this. So, no, I think it's really important to be clear that the war ends on the Western Front in defeat. And we can prove that really simply. It's not rocket science. You simply have to look at who asks for the armistice. And it's the military high command. It's, it's Erich Ludendorff and Paul von Hindenburg, the two generals, General Field Marshal, in charge of the German army. And they ask for it a month before the revolution begins. They demand, they tell the civilian government, we need an armistice. And we need an armistice now. And that's on the 29th of September. The naval mutiny, which triggers the revolution, which is the beginning of the revolution, only starts at the end of October. And the revolution proper only really gets going from early November. So a full month before the revolution, the high command had admitted defeat de facto and said, we have to have an armistice immediately. And that's because the German army has been pushed back and pushed back and pushed back on the Western Front since July. It's massively short of men. There's nowhere to get these extra men. It can't compete with the material. Of course, this is a war of material as well as manpower, with the shells, the guns that the British, the French, and in the case of the Americans, the fresh manpower that the Americans are able to supply on the, on the Western Front. And on the 26th of September, the Allies launch a, an offensive right across the Western Front, saying that hasn't been seen before. In the past, there's been an offensive in one place, offensive in second place, offensive in third place. And the Germans have been able to take their reserves and move them as kind of a firefighting force to wherever a breakthrough is threatened. At the end of September, the Germans have two problems. The first is that they don't have any reserves left. The entire army is exhausted. Their divisions, their military units are shells, many of them. If you look at troop strengths, you know, the division was supposed to be 15,000, well, 14,000 men, a German division by the end of the First World War. But many of them were down to three, four, five thousand. That's what I mean when I say that they were shells. So there weren't the reserves there. There weren't the units there. And secondly, of course, if there's fighting right along the front, you can't send your firefighting force, even if you have one, because it's everywhere. You're under attack everywhere. It spells doom. Um, Additionally, the British at the end of September puncture through the Hindenburg Line, Germany's last major defensive line in the West, on the Western Front as well. So it's really, really looking bad. You only need to sort of put those facts together to understand why the high command is suddenly desperate for a pause in fighting for an armistice. And the civilian government, and of course, in order to try and soften this, a so-called revolution from above is organised, where civilian politicians who haven't had that much power before are asked to take the lead of the government, social democratic politicians, liberal politicians. And the army's idea is that they will take the blame for any peace. Uh, and these civilian politicians are very reluctant. They say, well, hang on, you know, why can't we keep on going? You've been saying everything's been great up until this point. Why the sudden demand for peace? And if you demand peace, suddenly say we need peace now. How are we going to negotiate? They're going to just come down on us like a ton of bricks. We need to have some negotiation. Let's open negotiation. We'll talk about it, be a bit kind of maybe peace, the time's come kind of thing, let's say. The army commander's like, no, we need it now. At whatever the cost, do it now. So they do it. And of course, as the army command plans, these democratic politicians, these social democratic politicians, and I mean, I think if I had to name a hero, a historic hero, someone like Ebert, who is the chairman of the Social Democratic Party, he ultimately takes control of the government, he manages the revolution to avoid extremes of either side getting in, he becomes president of Weimar. I mean, he would be a real hero for me because 
these people were not responsible for the situation that the imperial regime had been created. They were not responsible for the defeat. They had done their best actually to support Germany, to support their working class constituency as well. They had sacrificed a huge amount. And at Germany's darkest hour, when the people who were responsible for this disaster step aside and say, nothing to do with us anymore, he did take over to try and make things better. It was another, but ultimately, ultimately he takes control as, as revolution approaches. And yeah, and then to have the opprobrium, the hatred heaped on him in the aftermath, history can be terribly, terribly unfair. So I get quite passionate about this, as you can say. In answer to your question, the defeat is at the Western Front. Revolution comes about only in the aftermath and only because it looks like the Navy is trying to prolong the war and that triggers revolution and the loss of imperial control. So it's very clear the chronology. There are military attacks. There is exhaustion on the Western Front. The high command loses their nerve and realises that war can't, that there's no hope anymore, demands an armistice, shifts responsibility to the civilian government. The civilian government asks the US for a peace. President Wilson, they hope, of the US will give them a kind, generous peace. And then the Navy says, ah, we don't need a peace. And without telling anybody, tries to launch a massive, ridiculous death ride into the North Sea to attack the British fleet, which is clearly going to end in disaster. The Navy mutinies, the imperial regime loses control, and within a few days we have revolution. So it's very clear that defeat is the initial thing, followed by peace negotiations, and only then followed by revolution. So yeah, no one should be taken in by that. Don't be taken in by the stab in the back myth. That is my message to your listeners. <laughs> and just, I guess, to ask some concluding questions, how do you think losing the war has impacted the way people, in particular historians, kind of look at Germany and Austria-Hungary's role or participation in the war, not just from the way it started, but pretty much to the end of it, really? Well, I don't think that it's easy to talk about the historiography of the First World War and what was written about the First World War without also taking into account what happens later in the 20th century with the Second World War. Germany's guilt in that and the awfulness that was perpetrated in the Second World War, in the aftermath of that, it's very easy to read the mentalities of German leaders in the Second World back to the First World War. I, I think that partly shaped the historiography. I mean, one of the things about Fritz Fischer, of course, is that Fritz Fischer himself had a burden of guilt to bear. He was, uh, so Fritz Fischer, as, as I mentioned earlier in, in our discussion, is um, was, was the German historian who really introduced the idea of Germany as being the guilty party in this war, in his book, Griff nach der Welt, Grass for World Power. But he was, uh, he joined the Nazi party. And there's some suggestion that part of his interpretation comes from personal feelings of guilt at supporting this party and all the abominations that it inflicted on Jews in Europe, on other peoples of Europe as well. Holocaust, occupations, world war. So I think that one always has to think, we can't separate ourselves as historians from our present or even our near past, but we've got to be careful of think about thinking about that too. And I think that certainly shaped German historiography for a long time of the First World War. The other issue is languages. And I mean, a lot of particularly military history and military history written in English, written by British historians or US historians, has been monolingual. And a lot of it has been great, but it does limit, it of necessity limits the perspectives. And I think therefore that some of the things that actually are propaganda or contemporary British assumptions or French assumptions about themselves and propaganda towards Germans, insidiously crept into historiography for a long time. 
Allied propaganda claiming the Germans were that the German invasion of Belgium was illegal, that the Germans behaved atrociously in many places, that they bear blame for the war. All of that is true. All of that is true, and without any question. But the thing is, is that these other countries, you know, Britain had this world empire. It was the world's dominant imperial power. It had a history of slavery. It had a history of taking other people's countries and suppressing peoples as well, and and military involvement. France too. Russia, my goodness, Russia as well. And none of these countries, actually, if you look at the way they're doing, you know, the British naval blockade, I mentioned it, by, by international standards, it's a war crime. And this blockade is one which doesn't simply stop key military materials like metals, like nitrates, which are important for explosives coming into Germany. It also stops food. Food is contraband under this blockade. There is an attempt to starve Central Europe out. How barbaric is that in the 20th century? The Russians, they have a program of, and I, I talk about this in my latest book, The Fortress, that they ethnically cleanse Jews, the first major anti-Semitic ethnic cleansing in the 20th century is not the Holocaust. It's what the Russians do in their own Western provinces and in Galicia already in 1914 and 1915. This is where it starts that early. And of course, the Russians have formed for this with the pogroms of 1903-6 and even earlier in 1881. The French too, they force, when they take Alsace-Lorraine, this disputed province between Germany and France, they force Germans out of that in the aftermath of the First World War. In fact, they were really forcing Germans out in 1914 when they invade it briefly. They take hostages. All of these powers have blood on their hands. That's the thing. And if you reverse your perspective and take a look at the point of view of the losers, with the benefit of all this other counter historiography in mind, then I think that, and this is what I was trying to do with Ring of Steel, you can actually create a creative to the historical record. And comparative history is crucial for that. And being able to go into other countries' histories without the preconceptions growing up in those countries, being part of the debates about those histories and taking a different view, it was a really valuable position for me to have, a really exciting position for me to have. And I think that looking at other perspectives, and in this case, the loser's perspective, I think is a really powerful way to provide balance to a historical record, which is inevitably affected by both the winner's rhetoric, rhetoric, but also by all of the history that has happened between 1914 and today. And how do you think the end of the war, I guess the Treaty of Versailles, do you think those set some of the conditions that will eventually lead to the Second World War? I mean, I guess if I can think some historians argue that there is a clear line from World War One to World War Two. Where do you come from your perspective on that? I think most professionals are very cautious about inevitability. And I certainly wouldn't say that Versailles, the Versailles Treaty, inevitably leads to the rise of the Nazi Party and the Second World War. Um, but I think it makes it more likely. And I think one of the things about 1914, and again, I tried to bring this out in my latest book, The Fortress, is that it unleashes a violence and a hatred in Central Europe that never really ends. Regimes collapse, empires fall, but the hatred and the violence that is unleashed simply mutates. The the killing doesn't end in 1918. The violence in East Central Europe, the area we focus on, goes on. This is still a, a very violent place, a very unstable place, through to 1923. 
And even then, there's a violence in the politics, a violence in the rhetoric. Democracy doesn't survive very long through most of Central Europe. It's not that the Germany's, the fall of the Weimar Republic in 1933 is exceptional. Polish democracy has already gone. Yugoslav democracy has already gone. The democracy in the Baltic states is either going or has already gone. Romania didn't really ever have that much of a democracy, but what there was has gone. Europe, Central Europe is full of extremist parties full of autocratic mentalities, full of prejudices, racial, ethnic prejudices, anti-Semitism. And it's 1914, at least in the context of East Central Europe, that unleashes this and explodes it. And once it's out of the box, it doesn't go away. So the Second World War, in the Nazi regime, inevitable? No, no, I wouldn't say that. But with 1914, it becomes possible. And with the German defeat and the significant flaws in the Versailles Treaty, I think it becomes significantly more likely. Mm-hmm. And just my final question is, overall, what do you think the legacy is of Germany's and Austria's Hungary's participation in the First World War is? I think it depends on which perspective you look from. I mean, I find it very, very difficult to see anything good out of the First World War. At least 10 million, some of the estimates are 18 million people killed. The destruction of societies, the destabilization of formerly pretty stable states. I've already talked about the violence and the hatred that came out of this. The Second World War, the Holocaust, all of this you can trace back to 1914. It's difficult to imagine these things happening without, I think, impossible to imagine these things in the way that they're happening in 1914. An attempt to murder all of Europe's Jews by Germany, certainly not, not without the First World War. I find that unimaginable. So for me, it's very difficult to talk in terms of any positive legacy. Uh, The only thing that I can think of that could be regarded as, as a positive legacy, is a positive legacy came out of the First World War, is the toppling of established elites. And that causes immense, that has its own problems, which I've talked about. But the one good thing that does come out of that is that in social and even ethnic terms, Europe and the world, it lays the foundation for Europe and the world becoming a more egalitarian place. The First World War does much to delegitimize empire. It's odd to say because empires actually get even, the British Empire reaches its even bigger after the First World War than it was before. But in terms of the ideas underpinning it, they are actually seriously questioned, seriously challenged in a way that they hadn't been before. Empire is out, nation state is in. And of course, that paves the way, not just for the independence of East Central European peoples, but also for independence of peoples right across the globe. And if we're looking for a positive outcome of this of this extraordinary budget, I think that would be it. The First World War, I think, is probably one of the most destructive conflicts in world history, really, if you look at the way it really shook Europe to its core. As Dr. Watson mentioned, from the British perspective, it's maybe the most traumatic event that the country ever endured. And again, I think all of that often gets left out from an American perspective because we were only really involved in the war on the front lines in 1918. And then we packed up our bags and left and that was kind of the end of it. And I think Dr. Watson also brings up a really important point about hindsight. And I think, and scholars continue to argue, and I think there's very legitimate reasons to argue that the aftermath of the First World War certainly sowed the seeds of what would come in the Second World War. If you look at the way Adolf Hitler rose to power, he sort of was able to point 
to the Jewish people and say, they stabbed us in the back. We didn't actually lose the war on the battlefield. We lost the war because of people giving up on the home front. And clearly people resonated with that. I think a lot of veterans who fought certainly resonated that, that had given so much for the country only to lose, certainly felt that way. But again, it's difficult if to examine that without that sort of hindsight. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges of history is you sort of always know the outcome. So when you're trying to examine these things through the lens of, well, what were these people thinking when you're looking at documents, when you're reading? I think those are always the challenges. But like I said previously, you're looking at the loser's perspective, I think brings the conflict as a whole back into the reality that, again, the only way to describe the First World War is a tragedy. Again, if you asked any of the great powers that were involved with that and August of 1914, if what would happen in 1918, they would do it. I'm sure all of them would say no. Even Britain, France, Russia, who came out victorious, but became, I think, national scars in a lot of ways. In some ways, I would almost say scars that took many, many decades to heal. We only had the century, the centennial a few years ago uh, in 2018. That's really not that long ago. And although a couple of generations have passed and I don't think there are any living veterans of the First World War, it's still recent enough that I think people can look to both for inspiration and also understand how tragedies unfold. So I hope you enjoyed the episode. Again, I always enjoy doing the First World War because there's so many different things to explore and examining the losers, I think, is an important perspective. So thank you. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.